0: Hello and welcome to Disinfect, the podcast where we air out the worst songs in music history. I'm Matt Deal, your co-host here with Morris Bernstein.
1: Hey Matt, how are you? It's good to be actually back with you because this is the first time we've seen each other since we recorded the very first episodes pre-COVID.
0: Yes, we are in person. We are in a recording studio looking at each other. We're at the W Sound Suites, the
1: same in Hollywood, the same recording studios we did the first three episodes in.
0: Yes. And then COVID interrupted and we saw each other only virtually. COVID interrupt us. Yes. And uh, we have a very, very, very special guest today. Um, Our special guest is none other than Brad Talinsky. And uh, Brad is the author of kind of one of the one of the most important new music books um, that's recently come out. It's an Amazon bestseller. I think it's been number one music book for, when when did it come out, Brad?
2: It came out on the fifth, but for, it's been like number one for like a month and just on pre-orders and stuff. Highly anticipated. I think they call it.
0: Yes. So the book is eruption Mm -hmm. conversations with Eddie Van Halen. Uh, It was written uh, by Brad with Chris Gill. And I mean, it is epic. It, it is probably it is one of the most important uh investigations into one of the most important figures in popular culture as far as I'm concerned and uh not to not to blow too much you know steam up your whatever but uh but 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 to to define who Brad is a little more he's also written kind of epic uh monumental books about jimmy page um, you know we're really getting into the the meat of some of the greatest music makers of our time, artists of our time. What are some of your other books that I'm missing?
2: Um, well, I did a book called Play It Loud, which was the history of the oh, electric yeah. guitar. I think you guys are seeing a pattern here. Yes. Jimmy Page, History of the Electric Guitar. Eddie, Eddie
0: Van, Van Halen. Halen. That guy. <laughs> um, yeah, but by the way, Brad was also for years uh, editor of Guitar World. And so. Yeah. So, so you like guitars, and I presume.
2: I do, I do. Even after all these years, I can, uh, <laughs> I can still spank the plank, so they say.
0: Yes, um, yes. it is your métier, as it were. <laughs> Brad is also just a crazy pop culture music junkie, and he knows. You know, he's he's a weird train spotter, like the rest of us. He's a fellow traveler. So we are talking. We are going to talk about Van Halen three, considered by by sort of the public and the critical conversation. To be kind of the most failed um van Halen record uh or misunderstood themes, oh, or by the way brad th- what do you think are the themes before i
2: well, you know i think uh <clears throat> you know I think sometimes the artist uh you know gets inspired they they I call it putting your finger into the light socket, you know and and you get this incredible inspiration, but that's the that's the tricky thing about art. You just can't be inspired all the time, yet you're expected to. You know, I thought uh, the great Bob Dylan book, uh, Chronicles, you know, it jumped around in, in time period. You know, it's a book that Bob wrote himself about his career. And people were a little puzzled by it because it just sort of arbitrarily jumped through his career to, I think it was three different eras of his career. And when I read it, the way I interpreted it was these are three different periods where Bob sort of got his mojo and then mysteriously lost it. And it, it, the book to me is him trying to figure out in some ways, like what happened, why that was, you know, and I think at the end of it, he doesn't have any real conclusion. So, you know, it's so, um, it's so hard to say, you know, that's when people talk to me about artists, I tend to think about uh, not them as a whole, because usually there are problems in their bodies of work. You know, I, I think about what records do I like by them? You know, I think most artists, they have their ups and they have their downs. And, and I think it's really hard if you've ever been on that creative end, you know, to, uh, to, to keep that thing going. That's sort of actually why the Van Halen thing is so interesting, because Eddie sort of had his finger in the in the light socket for so many years
1: right. until he sort of didn't. But go ahead, Maurice. Yeah, but I mean, you could also say that with the Van Halen 3 record, a lot of the inspiration was missing on that record because in a way it was Eddie Van Halen's solo album.
2: Yeah, well I have a lot to say about Yeah, we'll
1: we'll Van get Halen. into
0: we'll get into Van Halen 3. Yeah,
2: yeah, We're yeah. We're talking
0: to the experts, so But, but when yeah, we when we that beast Yeah.
1: But but so, you know, I I yeah. I I think that you know, it, it really it really depends on every every record has its own story. Especially with the Van Halen record, sometimes
0: these misfires are fascinating and memorable. And tell us a lot about the artist and their greatness, even if they are not a totally coherent statement. We have to also point out at this point, there are failures and then there are failures. These are major artists. Yes. And and we're talking about them because they're memorable. If they weren't memorable, we wouldn't we wouldn't be talking about them and... There's something kind of fascinating about that moment when an artist has that record that is just so ill conceived. Like Sandinista, I love Sandinista by The Clash. People hate that record. And I'm like, I'm sorry. There's so much of popular music that came out of that record. Yeah. That was, you know, they were engaging sample culture, they were engaging New York hip hop, they were being political and making protest music dub dub uh they were you know like a two album set was excessive for punk we're gonna do a three album set like pink floyd doesn't do a three album set you know again so it's like really going for it is you know that's the edge and 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 we'll get to that with van halen three what is the sort of the public and critical aggregate take on van halen three
2: well, I guess the the public take on it is you could say um, up until that time, every Van Halen record had gone at least triple platinum, and uh, Van Halen three barely went gold. So that was the public response to. Well, what was Van the critical Halen response? 3. Uh, they, actually, the critical response was um, a little kinder. Uh, You know, like guys like uh, Tom Sinclair, who's who is a great writer, uh, gave it a good review and could kind of see that the album of of what Ed was trying to do, that he was trying to sort of move away from, uh, you know, some of the cliches of of what Van Halen had developed into and then I he mean, and then he, uh, and then he uh, sw- you know, swan for, dived
0: into some new cliches
2: well I, I i felt like you know balance was a lazy record and uh but van halen three was not a lazy record it wasn't well eddie, hold on. it and, wasn't eddie it wasn't eddie trying to just coasting it was him trying to do something new yeah and uh you know i could go on about this for a bit but and in you're, that and way you're going for to. me Van Halen three is is a noble failure, as opposed to say maybe Balance, which I think is just sort of a lazy record.
1: Well, um, and and do you think maybe there was nobody really to hold Eddie back?
2: Yeah, well, that was on on purpose. Um, So, uh, you know, in my book, uh, um, Eruption: Conversations with Eddie Van Halen, it's sort of important to see the. the the big story right so um you know ed comes to uh the united states from from holland as a like a seven eight year old kid and he can't speak english and he comes here and he's really abused and sort of bullied right so he he retreats he retreats into his his bedroom and you know puts in his 10,000 hours that (laughs) are the thing that's required for you to become a genius, according to Malcolm Gladwell. And, um, you know, but the, the, the insecurities and the social anxiety from that period just really hangs in there. And he, uh, on these earlier records, he sort of gets pushed around by, These stronger characters, Ted Templeman, David Lee Roth, um, who are always relying on him to come up with the goods, but at the same time sort of dismissing him, you know. And so that was a frustrating He's like a show
0: pony, kind of.
2: A little bit. Um, I I think it's just because of Ed's personality, he was easy to sort of push around compared to those guys. They understood his genius, but... um, You know, whenever he would say, well, I'd like to do this, they would just ignore it and keep sort of pushing forward.
0: Well, I think that Ted Ted, Ted Templeman and David Lee Roth are very dominant personalities.
2: Yeah. And then that starts changing around Fair Warning, you know, around that record where Ed's starting to, you know, take on the accolades uh, and he starts pushing his own agenda a little bit. Right. But he's still getting pushback from all of these guys. Uh, And uh, so, you know, so what happens is he builds his own home studio so he can basically do his own thing. And the result of that is this gigantic record. Right. Um, So it's at the point of 1984 that Eddie starts taking a little bit of control over his, you know, his music and what he wants to do.
0: But also, I think, too, that 1984 and where it's confusing for Van Halen 3 he took control as strongly as as he had up to that point in Van Halen. And that was the most successful thing. So when he, yes. when he did it again for Van Halen 3.
2: Well, we got a little ways to go. Sorry. Because yeah. what happens is, right, he, he sort of takes control. You know, people weren't crazy about the idea of him doing jump and jump becomes this huge thing. and And, and Eddie starts thinking, well, hey, you know. I don't know. Maybe I should be in control of this operation, but uh, he he butts heads with David Lee Roth. They split. Blah blah blah. get Sammy Hagar, and Sammy also was a guy that had his own opinions about things, you know. And they brought in a succession of producers who also had their opinions. So Ed would always sort of complain about it, and I I spoke with Ed many times. I was up at fifty one fifty. And he was always a little bit bitter that he didn't feel like people were really listening to him, um, that he didn't have complete control over the music. And so Van Halen 3 finally comes around and he just goes for it. He brings in Mike Post, who is a successful songwriter, but not a producer to produce the record basically because he's a golf buddy and he knows that uh, Post is just going to be a yes man.
0: That first song on Van Halen 3... Is so Mike Post.
2: Yeah, the new world. Uh, I think it's called. Yeah, the thing. new
0: world. I'm like so bad. So, so by the way, let's let's. Mike Post basically wrote a lot of the most famous TV themes. I think he wrote Hill the, Street Blues. Hill Street, Street Blues. Yes. Law and Order. Law and Order. Some others. I don't know if he wrote Taxi. Was that Bob James? That was Bob James. Um, yeah, it was Bob. But he James. wrote in that vein he wrote sort of light jazz influenced
1: TV with Andy Williams. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, he was, he,
2: he had, he had produced one record, which was what and it was by uh, Kenny Rogers in the first edition back in, in the, uh, in the I, I'm just checking in to see what then.
0: condition my condition was in. Was it that one?
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know uh, actually which record, but it could have been. Um, but uh, what we're saying is he didn't have a lot of, um, experience as a producer as a songwriter yes not as a producer
0: well he was also what was interesting is you're saying he was he had experience as a songwriter but ed didn't really use him as for his songwriting abilities and no he, and he didn't no. really use him for his producing abilities
2: no um i'd say and, if anything uh,
0: van eddie van halen was a better producer than mike post
2: well yeah and they brought in um you know gary Sharon who was this young kid who basically grew up on van van halen and and worshiped dead and wanted to do his best to fit in so you know it, it was that classic case where you're surrounded by uh, a bunch of yes men but um you gary know Eddie, sharon,
0: by the way also not untalented you know no
2: he... uh gary sharon is indeed a talented and had Let's a great you. vocal range and um he Had you know, hits, he had hits. I think if you uh, were
0: going from Sammy Hagar to another vocalist, I think
1: Gary Sharon would make total sense. But but wasn't yeah. wasn't the theory that he was a stopgap because um, was it Gary Daniel? Who was the manager? Daniel, Daniels, Daniels. Ray Daniels, Ray Daniels, who was yeah. who was also Extreme's manager, was kind of holding out to try and get Dave back because bringing dave back into the fold that's when they could really get paid is that true well yeah.
2: in the book uh i did probably i think you know maybe one of the only interviews with ray daniels that's ever been done in depth to get all of those stories straightened out and um you know ray didn't it that was the rumor that ray was being mani- manipulative to get dave back in and everything but and also there was
0: the rumor to get gary in like that he shoved Gary yeah, in, yeah. which is and, not true um, either.
2: And Ray says in the book, he says, look, I, I put Gary's name in the hat, but I didn't really put any pressure there. He goes, in, in fact, I was a little bit, he was a little bit, um, he was a little bit surprised and maybe a little bit concerned that they didn't try out more people. But when Gary came in, uh, Ed just hit it off with, with him. He just like he just liked Gary. And, you know, I know Gary a bit, and he is a super likable guy. So, you know, you have this combination of Ed not wanting like some other huge ego coming in because he wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to make it the the, the great Van Halen record, okay. But but here's the here's the here's the problem because it's always much more complicated than that, and that is around that time. Ed was having wrestling with all kinds of things. I mean, he was trying to get himself sober.
0: His band but, broke up,
2: but not, uh, not particularly doing a great job of it. He was in therapy. He was having marital issues. He was, uh, you know, it was the beginning of when he started uh, having problems with uh, cancer. You know, any one of these things would knock a normal person sideways. And Ed had all three or four of them happening at one time while trying to create a masterpiece.
0: Well, and also well, by, by redefining his band that everybody had an opinion about. So yes. in other words, there were people, there were the pro Dave people, there were the people, there were, the... he didn't
2: really, I don't think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. I think Ed lived in such a bubble that Ed, he had been so successful with every one of his creative decisions up until that time. I don't think he really thought in terms of like, oh, I'm trying to please the fans or I'm trying to hold my band together. In fact, it was just the opposite. He really wanted to do Van Halen 3 as a way to reposition himself. And here's here's the thing about this record. Like, you can criticize it on a bunch of different levels, but you'll find something really interesting in almost every song and his playing is terrific on this record you know um we talked about the song year to the day it's eight minutes long it's not a great song but oh my god he's got like a ridiculous guitar break in the middle in the outro it's it's there's like stuff going on he's playing these cool jazzy telecaster things i mean he's really sort of going for it on this record and there's a lot of it that i really like. Now, the big problem is, it sounds terrible. Like, you know, um, that's where they needed somebody like an Andy Johns or a Ted Templeman, you know, and even um, Gary. Gary was pretty straight up with me about the whole process of the record. And he was hearing takes uh, and he'd be thinking, well, gee, you know. That doesn't sound great. Maybe we should do this and this again, or, or maybe that the sound isn't great. But but oh, my God, I'm talking to Mike Post. and I'm talking to Eddie Van Halen. Right, right. And, and they've been doing this for years and years and years. And I'm the new guy and blah, blah, blah. You know, that kind of thing. But um, I do. I don't think it's a it's not a lazy record. It's a very ambitious record. That goes off the rails for a myriad of other reasons.
1: Yeah, didn't did, did, talking about the sound of that album. The engineer on the record, didn't he leave before the record got finished?
2: Yeah, um, and it, it was sort of the uh, end of
0: his relationship with his longtime engineer, right, Don, Don Landy.
2: Don, yeah. Um, uh, but you know, according to Gary, he said Mike was really. Uh, was engineering the record. He was less, he was less producing the record and more engineering the record. And um, I think like, actually the guitar stuff is pretty good. And the band stuff is pretty good. The vocals are very, it doesn't do Gary any favors.
0: Yeah. Weird. You know,
2: it's, uh, but there's not the famous Mike Anthony background vocals on it, sort of supporting it. Um, There. There's well, there's there's fake, intonation the problems. Thing, there, there's
0: fake Michael Anthony background vocal.
2: Yeah, there's some Mike Anthony real things. I mean, Mike plays on about a third of the record.
0: When I say when I say fake, I mean, and again, this is a problem that the clash had. Yeah, there's there's stuff that's way forward and different than anything Van Halen has done. And then yeah. there's stuff that kind of seems like a not as good pastiche of the old stuff. Why don't we? Should, yeah. by the way, can we why don't we? Listen to a song. I picked a short one. Um, okay. I, I was going to suggest, uh, unless you have a, another choice, I I, w- I wanted to talk about the one I want, or one I okay. want. How do you feel about that as a representative choice?
2: I don't. I don't think it's it's a great record. I mean, a great song on the record. I, I'd say.
0: Well, I think it epitomizes sort of the problems in the record.
2: Oh, okay. If it, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's not a good. It's not one of the better songs on the record for yeah. sure.
0: Why don't we listen to it? Again, Boilerplate Van Halen intro. Neither inspired nor bad.
2: Very drawn.
3: He just want a little riff now on a little bit more.
0: I mean, Recording is very weird. Pizza if you man to just wants a slice. What?
1: It said pizza man just wants a slice.
0: <laughs> like that's pretty interesting, guitar playing. But but then it's like five seconds. Eddie always was like the leave him wanting more with the solos for the most part. Yeah. So the thing about the vocal. I mean, well, I want to analyze the lyrics in this song because they are very bad. But he's overselling, but he doesn't have anything to sell. Every note is like over-emoted.
2: I also think, like, I haven't put it up to a strobo tune or anything, but um, the difficult thing about singing in Van Halen is that Ed's parts a lot of times are so abstract that it's hard to almost pitch off of. And there isn't much support for his his vocal, so the intonation's a little bit funny, like his him hitting the notes, you know. Aren't.
0: I, wait, during the verse, I was listening and the chordings were actually clashing with the like if you listen yeah. here. It's kind of like like Andy Summers, like the Police, a little bit, yeah, which I think was an influence on some later Van Halen. See, it's like right there was a little out of tune.
2: Well, the vocal, I don't know. I'm not sure whether it's like a little flat or something, but there is like a little... there. It's, it's, not in t- it's not in pitch. And um, it's sort of the problem with this record, where if they would have had a more commercial producer, they would have probably been more careful with the vocals and where they're placed. And you would also have a totally different response to half of the songs on the record if they had just done that.
0: Now, by the way, this chorus... The one I want—I mean, that's about as generic. It, that's like it's like the worst combination of a generic pastiche of both the David Lee Roth era and the the the, the Sammy era. And
2: well, there it, was never anything generic about Dave. No, but well, oh, plenty but it, plenty generic but about he Sammy might be America, like. But, yeah but but so also the thing that's that's going on here is that um you know ed had been complaining for a while about how uh pretty good people just perceived van halen as a party band so he had this also desire to uh have the lyrics be a little bit more serious or you know thoughtful or political even and right um, now
0: is a good example of that that was a yeah,
2: song. And and that's not really where um that that's not what he could have gotten out of Sandy. No. So, um granted the lyrics aren't uh, aren't particularly profound on this record. But at the same time it's not like woohoo, you know, we're going, going to the beach or, and party. Well here.
0: they didn't want to do Diamond Dave.
2: Yes. By the oh, way or, this, or 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 surfer or surfer Sandy, you know. Like Neither one of those things you know he wanted we were talking about this he had been impressed by um you know the grunge bands like allison chains who van halen had taken out on tour and, uh, and they were talking about hardcore Nirvana stuff
0: they're talking and, about drug and, addiction and pain and emotions and
2: feelings yes ed and, was talking a lot in that period about his his inner his emotions where, his where he was at because he was going through therapy. He was uh, trying to, you know, get off of, uh, you know, stop drinking and doing coke and stuff. And uh,
0: and by the way, uh, Wolfgang um, talked a lot about Nine Inch Nails being a big influence on Wolfgang. Yeah. And the kind of, the kind of, uh, exactly what you're saying, like talking about bigger themes, bigger, bigger heavier emotional moments. And I think that that Wolfgang rubbed that off onto Ed. In well, that-
2: at this point, Wolf, Wolf was still, you know, pretty 16. young, like, like he was nine or ten or something like that, you know. So I, I don't know if that would have had a huge impact. I just think it was that Ed was, you know, growing up, and I think that actually going through therapy and him analyzing his own life and his own feelings he just did not feel comfortable with songs like Big Fat Money or Amsterdam from, uh, uh, you know, from the previous record. And he felt that that Gary could uh, deliver that for him. I mean, so that was a that was a that was a, a thing, too.
0: Well, let's analyze the lyrics.
2: Yeah. Poor now, man. That song, though, that that song is that's easy picking. Wait,
0: wait, well, that's why I picked it. Poor man, he just want a little. Rich man, want a little bit more. Superman, he looking for Lois. Salesman, and try to sell you his soul. Fat man, he's ordering seconds. Pizza man, just wants a slice. Bad man, looking for attention. A good man, he's hard to find. Mailman, looking more like your daughter. Straw man, don't have a leg to stand on. <laughs> Gay man, looking for another. I mean, I don't even. I don't know if that's homophobic or just weird.
1: He needs to be canceled.
0: Candy man, yeah, the candy man can. Um, black man, he looking, he looking for justice. So you stop speaking in proper English when you reference a black person. Uh, white man, he trying to get a tan. Oh my God. Woman, just want to fly in first class. Holy man, take me to the promised land i mean okay uh let's count the cliches it's don't have a leg to stand on there's the candy man can incongruous reference <laughs> there's the completely the take me to the promised land the the commentary the social commentary
2: yeah.
0: is- path- it, it's it's sub Hagar I mean, I don't look to Gary Sharon to tell me about civil rights and the struggles of the world, you know? Um I
2: like the, I like sub Hagar. I
0: like- No, but and by the way, yeah, sub Hagar. <laughs> that's, that's
2: a good, that's a good, that's a, that should go into the vernacular. Yes. Right well, you're
0: the, you're the man. So then also <laughs> you have all these cliches or, or yeah. the, the sort of profound, so profound in quotes, social mm-hmm. commentary in the verse. And then the chorus is, and you're the one I want, the one I want, the only one I want, I want, you're the only one I want. I mean, in other words, You've got the most banal, bubblegum, pop, shameless, trying to be, it's trying to be a hook chorus that is literally deracinated from the verse. It has nothing to do with the verse. Yeah. It's not like Jamie's crying or something, but it's like you see a cute girl on the on the strip and you want to go talk to her because you're the one I want. But then the verse is like, but the black man wants and the gay man wants and it's like, what the hell are you talking about? What right. what is going on here? What is good about this about this song, and how does it epitomize v- VH3? By the way, let's talk about the title. Van Halen had three. Uh, their third album was "Women and Children First. Yes. So to call this VH3, he's saying this is the true. This is the third iteration. The band. third. This is yeah, the true yeah. third this album. Is the third
2: chapter. Yeah. This is the third chapter in my uh, my life. I mean, I don't know if I can um, if I can defend all the lyrics on uh, this record, or even <laughs> I can defend all the lyrics on any Van Halen record. To be honest with you, well, some of them uh, are great. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's why we come to Van Halen uh, for. But you know, it's fair for you to definitely uh, criticize where this record is coming from at lyrically and vocally. Uh, being a guitar nerd. I tend to think more in terms of like what's going on musically and in terms of Eddie Van Halen, that's sort of where I end up. I, I end up just naturally going there. I'm not saying that that's legitimate.
0: I think it's the ballads. So for example,
2: like, I, I bet I think that the guitar playing on this record is, is great. And I think that there are some good songs on it.
0: So the song we just heard, you know, we talked Is one little, of the worst for sure. It's one of the worst. <laughs> um, but yeah, again, if you listen to the guitar solo, there's two guitar solos. There's the super short one, right? And then there's the, the longer one. And then there's some sort of mini ad libs. And then there's the intro out the sort of the outro that repeats intro that repeats itself. So like taken in isolation, they're, they're impressive as a song. It doesn't cohere.
2: Right. And, And I think that that's, that's where you see the, uh, I think that's where you saw the brilliance of of what Ted Templeman and David Lee Roth brought to Van Halen. Um, And I think that that's where you see Sammy Hagar, who is a very song oriented guy in a much different sort of way than Dave and and Ted were. And that they had really good producers, um, you know, when Sammy was in the band. Um, well, they had
0: producers so, so also the, that were, they, the they was, wanted hits. You know what I mean? Like Mick yes. Jones from Foreigner, who produced yeah. the first uh, Sammy Hagar fronted Van Halen record, Fifty One Fifty. I believe is that right? Is that the first one.
2: Fifty One Fifty. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, he was known for writing hits. So, yeah. and and he also got a pretty good guitar sound. And you know, he was Foreigner were known for their sound. People don't think about mm-hmm. this at the time, but but like, you know.
2: Uh, and they had Andy Johns do Foreign Lawful yeah. uh, Carnal Knowledge. It's a great sounding record. Um it has good songs on it. You know.
0: Did Ted Temple uh, do any of the he did did he do any Hagar? Van Hagar?
2: He he had to. <laughs> I mean, there's sort of a funny story about this. So they go in the studio with uh Andy Johns to do Foreign Lawful Carnal Knowledge. And uh uh Andy god bless him at that point in his life had maybe about two or three good hours in him before he would just go totally blotto oh yeah he know, was real alcoholic just, right yeah just drinking so that record they had been working um and then as ed would put it he'd go well you know you put me and andy johns and alex and sammy hagar in a room and we're just going to be pissing up rope for like you know three or four hours just talking and joking and stuff so that record sort of went on for you know close to a year making it and then finally the record company said, We gotta get somebody to close this deal. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so they brought in Ted essentially just to help them finish the damn thing up. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Stop the what's what's the famous uh, liquor store on the Sunset Strip? Uh Sal's is it Sal's liquors? Sal's liquors? Anyways there's the one, it's like they cut off the, the account. You know? <laughs> Yeah. 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 at the liquor store. Um,
2: But, but, but uh, I think the thing is, is about three and I'm not trying to be an apologist because I don't love, uh, you know, all Van Halen stuff. I'm not like a, a, a worshiper, but as a consumer, as a fan, as somebody that is interested in what Ed was doing, you know, he was trying to reinvent himself and, and actually there's a lot of, again, a lot of different things on this and the uh, the greatest hits record after that they did where they did three new, uh, you know, Sammy Hagar songs. And Ed was taking his guitar playing into new places. I think if he would have had the opportunity, it could have developed into like a whole new thing for him, you know, and it would have been great, but you know, this record was him just trying to, do his best to, uh, to to move it along.
0: So so what was that song? It was among those those Sammy Hagar songs you just referenced that, that it really has inventive guitar playing and there's like a huge Sammy Hagar hook and then there's really aggressive almost like really progressive sound dude. Uh,
2: it's about time uh, learning to see be up for breakfast. All those songs uh, the rhythm playing on it is sort of unlike anything else I've ever heard. Like even if you just focused on his rhythm playing. Uh, but that was, again, the the bit of the problem with it. It's sort of like every verse had its own different right. variation on the rhythm guitar parts, even though he was playing the same chords. And I think for fans.
0: And the Sammy melody over the rhythm parts was the same from the previous verse, but the the guitar music was completely different.
2: Yeah. A lot uh, in a lot of cases. And I think for the fans, it was just maybe too much, you know, like who, who were there for, there for the party rock, you know, too. He wanted version three. And again,
0: but, but version the, three, he, Peter the, Gabriel could, is
2: not, it's not progress, but, but that's, that's what he wanted as an artist. It, it was intentional. It's not like he even felt for this, that, that he had made some sort of uh mistake. But here's the here's the fascinating thing about three is Ed really invested everything into it. And he had never had anything even resembling a failure musically. So I think he sort of assumed that this would just go along with the that everybody else would come along for the ride. And when they didn't that completely blew his mind.
0: Yeah.
1: What happened in the aftermath of this record? Oh, just, sorry, a, just a comment. Um, but didn't, as far as the tour was concerned, didn't the fans like the tour because they were singing Dave songs. Cause Sammy refused to sing a lot of Dave songs on the tour. So, yeah.
2: They were happy yeah. to, they were happy to see that. Right. And again, you know, I think maybe if they had a, a couple of records and if that had been brave enough, some of it has to do with the fact that uh, when, it, when the record didn't do well, Ed pulled back because he didn't know how to handle that failure. But I think every great artist runs a risk and has failure, and then you have to be able to push through that, you know In a way, e- even with Strummer, you know, like cut the crap, it basically destroyed it blew his mind. Like he was never the same person again after that record uh and um you know and that that was for real so ed essentially uh you know you had the failure of this record then you actually did have the divorce and he falls off the wagon and he's uh you know he's dealing with going flying all over the world to try to find something to help him you know get rid of his help him with his cancer you know the the, the world is shooting off in 10 zillion directions and he's convinced in his head, the artist, Eddie Van Halen, the artist is convinced that his uh, his audience doesn't really want what he has to offer. And so, you know, here's a guy that has millions and millions of dollars and, and unlimited sort of creative freedom. And so what does he do? Like, he just takes his ball and goes home. He's like, "Screw you guys! You don't like this. This is me. You don't like it. I'm just not going to really give you anything."
0: Well, we we also talked about this too. He put his energy into his EVH guitars, yeah, uh, and really developed the EVH company, um, which is a guitar and amp company. Yep. Which he'd collaborated with um, PV. He'd co- collaborated with Music Man, yep. and then kind of like Michael Jordan and Nike, he really created um, one of the, really one of the major guitar companies with Fender. Yeah. Um, And he sort of revolutionized the guitar kind of in the way, the making of the guitar, not just the playing. He revolutionized the the playing and in his personal guitars, he actually revolutionized the structure of the guitars themselves. But he put all of that he'd learned into his guitar company and yeah. actually made masterpieces of musical instruments and equipment
2: well that's why he went to fender um was because he knew that they could afford to build the guitar that he um uh, that he wanted to make right you know, uh it's really fascinating um so, yeah, he sort of takes his ball goes home musically and he's like, "Okay, well, people just don't want they just want the old stuff. They don't want the new stuff. I'm going to sit at home and I'm going to record and play, keep on playing what he did." Right. Uh in his studio, all kinds of music. He'd go over to his studio and you would see like literally walls filled with you know, CDs that have stuff recorded on it and cassettes and God knows what, you know. There and uh, he says, look, I'm just going to focus on making great amps and guitars. You know, he, he goes into that, you know, that realm. And, and look, hey, that, that's sort of brilliant as well. You know, I mean, he's one of the few guitar players that has one of his guitars in the Smithsonian, yeah. basically for his contribution to, you know, American culture.
0: Well, I think you made the point, too. He's the only guitarist that actually has his own guitar company.
2: Yeah, yeah. He didn't have a signature guitar, he had a signature guitar company.
0: Yeah. And and
2: uh, uh and a successful one at that. I mean, like uh, you know, we we're talking about like you you see almost any country band these days and they're all using fifty one, you know, they're all using his amps. And uh a lot of the hardcore bands Yeah, metal bands, are using it. you know
0: sh- shredders. Well and again yeah. it's actually they're very versatile. You can get yeah. the Van Halen sound, but you can yeah. also get clean sounds. You can also get kind of Fendery yeah. sounds, Marshall sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting too about this record, and you know, again, it is a failure, but it's a fascinating one. There, there is yes. incredible playing on the record. There are incredible moments, but they don't cohere. and And I think also this is something that's really significant. The, this I don't want to say the formula of Van Halen, but sort of like what people got used to with Van Halen was instant gratification. So yeah. in other words, like I remember when I heard um, You Really Got Me on the radio, which was, I mean, it was the first single that they did. And I heard it on classic rock radio, The Loop, where Chicago rocks. It came after something like I don't know, Mississippi Queen or Pinball Wizard or, you know, Nazareth, or a whole lot of love. I mean, it was one, you know, it came right after these these titans that were so familiar, and then you heard this thing, it was like, it was like, whoa, there was a through line to it. It belonged on the radio, you know, it was the radio station that played the Kinks, it was the radio station that played Led Zeppelin, but it was like a new sonic thing. It was just, it was new. So, just to sort of wrap up, you know, it's funny, where, where I think this is an important record, and especially after reading your book mm-hmm. is it's an important record for Eddie Van Halen as a human being, and I mean that by saying he did everything he wanted to do right he He made his statement, love it or hate it and the the next chapters of Van Halen and his life, I think were pretty happy considering you know he got into an incredible relationship with his son. He had a pretty successful, you know, there was some turbulence, but when he got back together with David Lee Roth, they had a very successful tour, a fairly successful reunion record. It, you know, not, not the greatest Van Halen record, but really a, a decent stab at being Van Halen and authentic. I mean, it's it, it, it sort of, I think we talked about it, it Sort of that, what's that record called, the, the, the reunion record? Um, uh, a Different Kind of Truth
2: a different kind was of the,
0: record. was the reunion record. That record was basically the record, the, the songs that were left off the first three Van Halen
2: records. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so there was a reason well, that,
2: that, that was, that was the thing. So what's interesting about Ed's story. And the one thing they tried to convey in the book is that, that there is this really interesting arc um, of, you know, again, he starts out as, as a kid sort of struggling um, you know, defining his place to fit in, and then comes this huge superstar, and then he goes through a really dark period. You know, and it wasn't just a short dark period; it was a fairly long dark period. Um, from you know, basically the 2000, the early you know, the first part of 2000, 2000 to 2010. And he's just struggling on every front, you know, um, physically, emotionally um, with, uh, you know, all sorts of problems with substance abuse, you know, fighting with band members, you know, all of this stuff. And then um, his second wife, Janie, comes along and she helps him to clean up uh, and really takes, you know, she's really sort of a hero in all of this. She really just... You know, sort of ties him to a chair, <laughs> right. you know, and doesn't let him go anywhere. To quote Tommy, um, and and then also at at that part is also his son is growing up, and there's a thread about family that goes throughout this entire book too. Mm-hmm. It's super important to him. So it's a combination of Janie and his son, sort of bringing him back. And it's really Wolf that forces him to start playing again, to playing as a band again, it's playing
0: in public. The really. idea
2: of playing with his son to him is such a driving force. But he does get clean. Yeah. Even though he's he's still having you know wrestling with the with Demon. his health issues, Yeah. but he does get clean, and he turns into a different person. Like I knew Ed, uh, you know, in the late '80s pretty well and he was okay he was a cool guy he was a lot of fun to hang out with and i also knew him when he was going through his deepest darkest times and i was actually afraid for his life at that period i didn't think he was ever going to sort of pull out of it mm-hmm. but at the end he does come out of it with the help of his son and his wife and i think to some degree david lee roth and he you'll see in the book, he sort of reevaluates all of this stuff. And instead of like, I hate those guys. Those guys didn't let me do what I wanted to do. Blah, blah, blah. He starts seeing how important they were to him to help him become Eddie Van Halen from Ted Templeman to Sammy Hagar to David Lee Roth to, you know, Michael Anthony, all that stuff. He has this great revelation, which, um, you know, I mean, I don't mean to make it like corny like a Hollywood film, but to me, it was amazing to see, A, my friend back, this guy, uh, back from the brink, and then also have this whole appreciation for what he did in the past. But at the time of Van Halen 3, he couldn't see any of that.
0: Right. He wanted to wipe the slate clean. And what's interesting, when Van Halen was most successful was when there was sort of a, some sand in the oyster. Absolutely. So, for example, um, Eddie Van Halen hates Diver Down, the yes. album. He hates it. Uh, and, in fact, the whole genesis of that record was David Lee Roth and Ted Templeman harassing him to do a version of Dancing in the Streets because Ted Templeman and David Lee Roth have this idea that if a song was a hit once it could be a hit again oh what amazing calculus um and, and they
2: also wanted a record in th- in like well, two or three months
0: well and, and, and what we got <laughs> what i learned from your book was what was interesting was so dave no dave um eddie resisted covering dancing in the streets i think he refused to do it and but but he was like okay we can do Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison, right? And it was, like, it was like, I'll give you that. And he hated doing that too. But that was such a huge success that they then had to turn around the record in like a month and do all those cover songs he hated, including Dancing in the Streets. But what was interesting was uh, Pretty Woman by Van Halen, the cover, it is a little crass, but... It's kind of genius. And he kind of, in other words, he was forced to do it, but he took it apart and deconstructed it and made something new and Van Halen, and that's actually what made it great. In other words, it was the conflict that he was solving of having to do a cover song he didn't want to do that made it inspired.
2: You know, in some ways it drives me, um, uh, I'm not putting this on you, but like, you know, this whole dramatic conflict um, between the singers, I think sometimes the music and, and, and sort of his accomplishments get a little lost. And when it gets right down to it, the guy was one of the, you know, arguably the greatest guitar player since Jimi Hendrix. Right. So that automatically makes him one of the great musicians of the 20th century. So it's no surprise he can take you know, something make it great. <laughs> yeah,
0: A great pop song. Well, yeah. but, but yeah. to his credit, when Van Halen did great cover songs, they made them their own. Yes. Period. And when I was starting to say earlier, I never really finished the thought, the instant gratification thing. Like you hear, you know, everybody wants, um, or, oh. um, beautiful, yeah, beautiful girls, beautiful girls, running with the devil, and um, the, the cradle will rock. And you get it instantly. You get the hooks. You remember the hooks, but then there's—and this is Dave a little bit—and also Ed. There's something below that. There's there's a there's a sort of a literary perspective. There's storytelling. There's musicianship that's better than it has to be, you know. And so you get this zap of like, oh, that's kick ass, and then you actually like like with Ed. I think his lyrical genius was speaking about the human id, you know, and like, Mm -hmm. like losing yourself to the id and almost like a blues singer, like, like, you know, getting caught up with the devil woman or something. Like he was constantly in a conversation with his id about what is good and what is bad. And, and a lot of people have those feelings.
2: Well, well, Dave, Dave mixed the rock and roll bad boy, archetype with with like a 40s 40s jazz you yeah. know what i mean <laughs> <Frank Sinatra. laughs> that's, just, that's just a new thing you know or like some sort of weird like rock and roll beat poetry yeah um you know it, it, he's a you know david lee roth is a genius he's like one of the few guys that can write stupid rock lyrics that you can completely embrace totally you know um i can't in fact it's hard for me to think of i think i think Mick Jagger's super underrated at at being able to do the same thing too. Like the stones always, everybody talks about the stones, but, you know, Jagger as a lyric writer is excellent at doing rock songs. David Lee Roth, same thing, you know, and, um, and Ed didn't appreciate that. He did. He didn't. Well, he didn't until later. It didn't until later, but, but here's the thing. So to make great rock and roll band, you have to have the yin and the yang. It's just, you know, yeah. you had Eddie who was the musician, the introvert, the, you know, cerebral guy. And then you had Dave to sell it, you know, sell right. his genius in a certain kind of way. Uh, you know, it's the same thing with uh, uh, Townsend and Indultery or... And or, uh, McCartney. Jagger and Richard.
0: Mick, Mick Jagger, Jones Jagger The Joe sophisticated
2: Strummer. guy versus the... You know, the street guy or Lennon and McCartney, you know, it's like when those two elements come together, that's when you have sheer greatness. And it's sort of what you're missing when Gary Sharon comes into the picture, right? It's just so much yin and not enough push against it, you know, not enough yang. Disaffect was
3: created by Boris Bernstein and Matt Deal. Produced by Sean Lewis and Esther Yoon Recorded and mixed by Sean Lewis At W Sound Suite, W Hollywood Theme music by Jeremy Clark A.K.A. Mr. Sixty Six Artwork by Bill McMullen A.K.A. Millions make millions. If you want to tell us how much you love or hate disinfect, or wish to purchase an extremely overpriced commemorative mug, oven mitt, or T-shirt, please find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and disinfectpodcast.com. You can also contact us. At info at disinfectpodcast.com Please like, subscribe, donate, all that shit Thank you, see you next episode To disinfect more of music's worst songs Wherever fine podcasts are shilled Copyright Giant Step 2020 whatever other necessary boilerplate legal mumbo jumbo blah 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 you hear at the end of your favorite podcast